Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. Or should I say, Schön guten Abend, willkommen in Lights Out Library. Ich heiße Sarah, und es freut mich sehr, dass Sie hier sind. Join me tonight as we explore another chapter and the story of our endlessly fascinating world. For tonight's episode, I'm going to be trying something new. Rather than a retelling of one of the French Whisperer's wonderful stories, I'll be telling you a story of my own. You don't yet know this about me, but I love travel and adventure. It's one of the reasons I was excited to work with the French Whisperer because creating this channel allows me the flexibility to work just about anywhere. And so I'll be periodically introducing new episodes about my adventures, whether international or domestic, to share with you some of the delightful, surprising, and just plain fun places I'm able to visit. You'll learn alongside me about the daily life, the highlights, and the histories of a variety of locations, as well as experiencing the magical moments that happen only when you travel. So feel free to close your eyes and relax. Imagine yourself next to me, seeing what I'm seeing, as we go off the beaten path and explore Berlin in Germany. There are two more new things this week, I didn't know before I started doing this work how isolating it would be to work at home, so I've pinned some questions at the top of the comment section if you'd like to share your thoughts about this story and its themes. Don't do it now, of course. This is your time to relax and rest. But I hope you'll come back another time and join the conversation, because I'd love to get to know you more. I've also started my own Patreon page, if you'd like to support the work I'm doing on Lights Out Library. As you'll learn in a minute, I quit my job to take on this new endeavor. And if you're able to benefit from it, I hope you'll support me in any way you can afford. I know the value of hard-earned money, so any amount is appreciated. You can find a link to my Patreon page in the video's description. All right, let's go to Berlin. I plan this trip to celebrate a new chapter in my life. The end of my job at Starbucks, which I took on during the pandemic to get out of the house and to meet people after moving to a new town. We started work on Lights Out Library in April, so I did two jobs for the summer, Starbucks and creating content for the new channel. By the end of the summer, I had even more respect for people who work multiple jobs than I did before, and a trip seemed like the perfect way to celebrate this new stage in my life. I chose Berlin because I used to live in Germany, in Heidelberg in the south, and had been craving the chance to speak German. Despite using the language a lot in my Starbucks job due to living in a tourist destination, I could still feel myself losing vocabulary. 
When I say I love to travel, I mean I love everything about it, including planes and airports. I will never forget the first time I flew, at age 18, from San Francisco to Frankfurt, Germany. I had butterflies in my stomach and shook with adrenaline. I don't get butterflies at the airport anymore, but there is still something that remains magical to me about hurtling across the sky in a metal tube, watching the horizon and landscape transform outside the window. Nowadays, I don't fly very often, driving to destinations when I can, but I still think flight is thrilling. So, needless to say, my flight to Berlin was delayed. I won't bore you with the details, since anyone who travels by plane these days knows about the delays, the lack of services, the long lines to get help. I'll just say that I ended up sleeping on a bench in Atlanta in Georgia, had an unscheduled layover in New York City, then finally made it to Berlin on Sunday instead of my scheduled Saturday arrival. After a brief taxi ride to the hotel in the former East Berlin, I ate a quick German breakfast, then grabbed a nap. A side note about German breakfast. Coming from the U.S., where breakfast growing up might have been a bowl of cereal or eggs or toast, German breakfast was an eye-opening experience for me when I first went there. The main ingredient is bread, usually either a dense, dark, whole-grain rye called Schwarzbrot, black bread, or rolls called Brötchen, which translates literally to little bread, accompanied by an impressive spread of toppers, cheese, meat, maybe some sliced veggies, butter, honey, jam, Nutella, all served with coffee and tea. It took me a while when I first moved to Germany in the 90s to not just have Nutella every day. Chocolate for breakfast? This was revolutionary, and though Nutella has since reached the U.S., a good roll, crusty on the outside and tender on the inside, generously slathered with butter and Nutella, in a perfect, salty-sweet balance, still evokes memories for me of that time in my life. The last time I was in Berlin prior to this trip, it still very much had a former Soviet bloc vibe, which we'll discuss more in a little bit. Back then I had friends who lived and worked or studied in Berlin, and I myself was supposed to have been among them. My first husband was German, and I had applied to and been accepted to attend the Freie Universität, the Free University, in the southwest corner of the city. A change in his study plans brought myself and my ex-husband to Boston instead, but for me it is one of those what-if moments in life, when I see that a small turn in another direction would have changed everything in my life. I have a few of those as I think we all do. For this visit, I chose to stay in the eastern half of the city, as I mentioned, formerly part of the Soviet Union, 
So let's discuss some of the history of East and West Berlin. After World War II ended in 1945, the war's allies met in Potsdam, just outside Berlin, to divide up Germany into four occupied zones, controlled by the U.S., France, Britain, and the Soviet Union. Berlin, as Germany's capital at the time, was also divided up, even though it was located in the eastern portion of the country that would be under Soviet control. As relations between Western allies and the Soviet Union became more and more contentious, their Cold War was fought with Germany on its front lines. During this period, West Berlin almost ceased to exist. The Soviets were constructing a metaphorical and sometimes literal barrier between communist and non-communist countries, called the Iron Curtain, attempting to control and restrict not just access to Berlin, but to the presence of Western influence, currency, and governance. When the entire Soviet delegation walked out of a meeting of the four countries in March of 1948, U.S. President Harry Truman later said that, quote, For the city of Berlin, this was an indication for a major crisis. Shortly thereafter, the Soviets began actively restricting access to Berlin, culminating in the Berlin Airlift, organized by Western allies in response to a full blockade of Berlin by the Soviets. Hoping to choke off the western portion of the city, the Soviets blocked all water, road, and train routes into it. At the time, Berlin had enough food to survive for about 36 days, and enough coal for 45. Ground access to Berlin had not been negotiated after the war, it turns out, but the four countries had agreed to three 20-mile-wide air corridors. So, lacking access to the city by land, the Western Allies organized an airdrop instead, which could not be seen as an act of war, since these were cargo planes, not warships. Called Operation Vittles, the airlift was expected to last three weeks, but instead lasted for fifteen months. This meant that what was started on a shoestring became an elaborate effort requiring the cooperation of multiple countries and an entirely new level of operational capabilities. Over 2,300,000 pounds of supplies were flown to Berlin during that time, two-thirds of which was coal, used for heat and power. At the peak of the airlift, there were supply flights landing in Berlin every 30 seconds. At last, the Soviet Union relented, and in May of 1949, the blockade was officially ended. Two weeks later, Germany was officially split into two countries, the FDR, the Federal Republic of Germany in the West, the new capital of which would be Bonn, and the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, which kept East Berlin as its capital. That first day, I wake up from my nap in an East Berlin that would have been unrecognizable in 1949. 
all around are new high-rise apartments and cranes, stylish office buildings, and efforts to modernize without completely erasing all traces of the past. I feel somewhat refreshed and head out to explore the area. My preferred style of travel is to wander, usually on foot and without a plan, and today is no exception. I head south from the hotel along the river, also checking out my food options along the way. It turns out my hotel is located right next door to the Mercedes-Benz Arena, a huge sports and performance venue, and I have to laugh to see that the nearest restaurants are American staples, burger, steak, and coffee chains that I could find in any U.S. town or even airport. I cross the River Spree on the Oberbaumbrücke, the Oberbaum Bridge, a Berlin landmark. Originally a wooden bridge when first constructed in 1732, it was upgraded to stone and brick near the turn of the 20th century in order to accommodate heavier traffic and planned U-Bahn tracks for the city's soon-to-be-built subway. It's a visually interesting bridge, with two towers, built in the North German Gothic style, and I'm not sure I've ever seen a brick bridge before. It looks to me almost like someone built a building on top of a bridge. There is some graffiti on the bridge, and it doesn't take me long to realize that there is graffiti everywhere. And this is not hyperbole, because I mean everywhere. Nearly every surface, every building, bus, train, wall, bridge, bench, light post, has been graffitied. Some spots seem to defy gravity. How did they get up there? And others, just common sense. Did they really have to paint that 200-year-old ornate wooden door? Berlin, it turns out, is famous for its graffiti culture. Born in the 80s, as famous street artists took to painting the west side of the Berlin Wall, sparking a trend which continues to this day on both sides of the city. As I walk, I see countless examples of graffiti, some beautiful or funny, dark, satirical, meaningful, but nearly all with a dark twist, a hard-earned cynicism that seems to be Berlin's signature style. In addition to the graffiti, I note that nearly everyone is drinking beer. This is not the German beer drinking you might be picturing in a beer garden served by a busty lady in a traditional costume. No, here everyone walks down the street with a large bottle of beer in hand, drinking freely in public, and then, when done, either just leaving the bottles in any random spot or smashing them on the ground. The sidewalk everywhere is heavily littered with broken glass and abandoned bottles. I'll come to learn in the course of my stay that beer here is cheaper than bottled water, and a large beer can be purchased at the grocery store for as little as fifty cents. It is raining on and off as I walk. The sky is gray, but I welcome the cooler temperatures after an extra hot summer at home in the U.S. Luckily, I've missed by a week 
the late summer heat wave that swept Europe in the previous weeks. And there's air conditioning in the hotel room if I need it, though I never do. I'm surprised to see how many shops and restaurants are open today, considering it's a Sunday. I'm not sure if it's a big city thing, or if Germany has just changed in the years since I lived here. But last time I was in Germany, maybe ten years ago, for a day trip on a Sunday, everything was closed. It's sort of a German thing, to close on Sundays and early on weekdays, around dinner time. It's a lovely tradition for working people who can get a day off and be home with their families in the evenings, but challenging as well for people who might need to shop on Sundays or evenings because it's their only time off. I meander through residential neighborhoods and come across an old church with beautiful stained-glass windows and go inside. Surprisingly, it has the atmosphere of a community center more than that of a typical church. Tables are set up in the hall just beyond the entrance, and a few people are hanging out, chatting, clearly regular visitors. I smell coffee brewing, and maybe even a whiff of cigarette smoke. A few people are in the chapel beyond as well, and someone is playing the pipe organ above, while a woman in the aisle gives an impromptu performance, singing along to the hymn, in a high, clear voice, while a few of us listen with admiration. This moment reminds me of the piece I did about Notre Dame in Paris, in which churches of old were much more like this, a lively place for people to gather and find community. The atmosphere is still appropriately respectful, but also lived in, comfortable in a way I didn't expect. I love moments like this when traveling, when I get to be a tourist, not of famous sites, but of people's everyday lives. I wander on and find a small bridge, absolutely covered with graffiti, that crosses over what appears to be a canal of sorts, of which I will encounter many in Berlin during my visit. Everything is so green, and I stop to admire an oak tree, heavily laden with acorns. Families with strollers and kids on bikes walk in the park, and I'm reminded how much Germans like to be outside. I appreciate all these welcoming outdoor spaces, which are also built to be accessible with ramp tracks built into stairways to make it possible to push a pram, bike, or wheelchair. I exit the park and find another stretch of the same canal, this one lined with an assortment of buildings built over the water, all in various states of disrepair. Some appear to be cafes or bars, some homes, but they all convey a cozy, dilapidated charm, quite the opposite of the German Alice in Ordnung sensibility that I expected. Alice in Ordnung meaning everything in order. And yet the more I immerse myself in Berlin, I start to see that the lack of order appears to have its own internal structure, its own reasons and history, and I stop searching for some imagined Berlin and instead start to get curious about this one. I stumble upon a row of what look like dilapidated warehouses, also graffiti-covered, all brick, 
with unused train tracks running between them. This must once have been a bustling industrial area, but for now it looks nearly abandoned, with the exception of one building that looks like it's been converted into a sports hall. Another has big open doors, and I poke my head inside to find an indoor antiques market with a very Berlin assortment of goods. Old signs, heavy wooden vintage furniture, KGB-style leather trench coats, and creepy metal molds from the fifties, maybe, for making rubber doll heads. Others of the old buildings have been converted into music clubs, and it appears there's a lively music scene in Berlin that's just as messy as the Berlin aesthetic. As I walk, I peruse the shop windows, on the lookout for a café with cake and tea. Germans tend to eat seasonally, and I am curious to know what the seasonal cake is. I take note of a small chapel with a park behind it, deciding that I'll return to check it out after I've eaten. I find a café and order the berry cheesecake, a light, creamy cake topped with a layer of gelatin packed with raspberries. Like breakfast, the first bite fills me with sense memories from thirty years ago, when all these flavors and textures were new, and so many years later they almost feel new again. The café is decorated with a random collection of old kitchen tables and chairs, some ornate, some plain, some quirky, a metaphor for Berlin itself. My Darjeeling warms me up after walking in the chilly rain, and outside on the sidewalk a colorful parade of locals pass by. My brain and body, which have slept and woken up in three different time zones in the past three days, finally understand that I am in Germany. It feels like a homecoming. I backtrack to the chapel and find not a park, but a cemetery located behind it, and take a stroll among the gravestones. The cemetery has provided a rack on which people hang their watering cans, locked up with bike locks, for maintaining the graves. It reminds me of tending to my ex-husband's grandfather's grave, alongside his grandmother, pulling weeds for someone I never met, who died young, fighting for the Nazis. Cemeteries can be like that, a place where humanity and history collide, and I can't help but wonder as I look at the older stones, which among the dead served Hitler, and yet still someone cares for them, pulling weeds and planting flowers. I'm reminded of asking my ex-husband's grandmother, who had been alive for World Wars I and II, and who I called Oma about living under the Third Reich, and her answer was one I never forgot. Under Hitler, she said, life was good. Everyone had a job. Even now I get chills when I remember her saying it. This was not a stern woman, a hard woman, a villain. This was Oma. We canned beans from her garden together. So when I hear people ask how something like the Holocaust could have happened, how a whole populace could be convinced to either take up arms or look the other way, it's Oma's answer, at least in part, that I think of. 
that acts for me as a reminder and a warning. I explore the cemetery some more and see at least two people there to visit the deceased, paying their respects with heads bowed. But while this is a place of grief and death, it is also a place to live, and in an open grassy area, a group of people have met so their dogs can play. The cemetery backs up to a block of apartments, and on the other side of the fence, some neighbors play ping-pong on a backyard table, laughing and talking. The trees are green, the path is inviting, and so, like the dead would do given the choice, I continue on my way. I finish my day in Friedrichshain, a bustling neighborhood full of restaurants with sidewalk tables. People are out, enjoying the break in the rain and their last little bit of freedom before the work week begins again tomorrow. I'm hungry for a bratwurst, a very typical German sausage, usually grilled and served with a crusty roll and spicy brown mustard. But Berlin once again defies all my expectations. And instead of bratwurst, I can only find currywurst, which is a deep-fried hot dog, sliced and served smothered in hot curried ketchup, that originated in Berlin in 1949 and became popular among workers rebuilding the city after the war. Currywurst appears to be the only nod to German food in Berlin, because nearly every restaurant I see serves either burgers, Mexican food, or doner kebab, also known as gyros, traditional Turkish food that especially dominates the Berlin food scene. There's lots of terrible American food as well. As an American who loves to travel, I'm always disappointed to see that the worst, unhealthiest part of our culture, our fast food, has become our most popular export. But I didn't come all the way to Europe to eat Domino's pizza, so I get some falafel and head back to the hotel for a good night's sleep. In the morning I awaken rested, though sneezing from my allergies, and ready to explore some more. Today I have two specific destinations in mind. Checkpoint Charlie and the Brandenburger Tour, or Brandenburger Gate. But before I get to those, let's return to the history of post-war Berlin. So as I said earlier, East and West Germany were officially formed in 1949. And while the Soviets closed the border between the two countries in 1952, it remained open in Berlin, and the city became a point of escape for East Germans eager to reunify with family or to leave the oppression and relative poverty of life under Soviet control. Escape elsewhere was still illegal, though, and the penalty was potentially death, administered on the spot by armed East German guards, who were ordered to shoot anyone they could not otherwise prevent from fleeing. But as I think we all know, people don't like to be imprisoned, to be told where they can and can't live, to be forced to live according to someone else's ideals under threat of death. East Germany was losing a large number of its citizens, nearly three and a half million of whom escaped between 1945 
1961, largely through Berlin. So what changed in 1961? That year, there were rumors inside East Berlin of an impending wall, initially denied by East German leadership, meant to staunch the flow of emigres through the city's open border with the West. In August, rumors turned into the sudden appearance of a barbed wire barrier, constructed nearly overnight by the Soviets, encircling West Berlin. Neighborhoods, families, even cemeteries were suddenly and dramatically divided. Within a few days, the barbed wire became wire fencing and physical walls, tall, thick cement barriers topped with more barbed wire. Crossings into the West were now limited to just a few checkpoints, the most famous of which was Checkpoint Charlie, now a tourist attraction, monument, and museum, but at the time a display of Western military power. When the wall was first erected, Western allies met to discuss what recourse, if any, the Soviets would face in response. For the United States' part, President John Kennedy was not eager to start a war, which is understandable considering that nearly the entire globe had only recently been involved in the most deadly conflict in world history, World War II, which took anywhere from 50 to 85 million lives. Still, there was saber-rattling on both sides, and Soviet and U.S. tanks faced off against each other from either side of the east-west border at Checkpoint Charlie. President Kennedy also visited the checkpoint during the conflict in a show of solidarity with Berliners. Ultimately, President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev agreed to a truce of sorts. If the Soviets removed their tanks first, then the U.S. would take a softer position on Berlin going forward. At Checkpoint Charlie, first one Soviet tank slowly backed up five meters, then a U.S. tank, then a Soviet tank, and so on, until all the tanks had retreated. Walking to Checkpoint Charlie, I passed through a series of green spaces set down below road level, where I am excited to find a whole bunch of plants with fruit on them. My family will tell you that I cannot resist tasting the fruit of just about any plant I see, wild or cultivated, and today is no exception. Please rest assured that I am very careful, and I don't recommend eating wild plants if you don't have any knowledge of them. First I try the ones I recognize, this purple rose hip, these crab apples, and the ones I don't, like these two red varieties. All of these are too astringent. These look like Oregon grape, but I don't try them, and these look like quince, but like these elderberries can cause illness when eaten raw. The western side of the city has decidedly less graffiti, though this little gem tucked in the corner of a doorway, of a rat guarding toilet paper, appears to have been inspired by COVID-era hoarding. Arriving at Checkpoint Charlie, the area is full of tourists, far more than I have yet seen on this trip, 
and besides the small guardhouse that remains at the site, there is a tall signpost, on which appear photos of guards one would have encountered when approaching the border, an American soldier on one side, an East German on the other. Adjacent to the guardhouse is the Checkpoint Charlie Museum, a wonderful museum I visited years prior about the history of the Checkpoint and those who escaped or attempted to escape East Berlin. I highly recommend visiting this engaging museum if you're ever in Berlin, as it really brings those events to life. Also nearby is another significant memorial, named Topography of Terror, located at the site of the former SS, Gestapo, and Reich security headquarters. This museum has both indoor and outdoor exhibits about the history of the rise of the Third Reich. I visit the outdoor exhibit, and though I've read countless books on the subject, there is always more to learn, and I'm encouraged as well to see the size of the crowds and the careful attention they pay to this timeline of creeping fascism. Speaking of fascism, let's return to our discussion of the Berlin Wall. After initial construction of the wall in 1961, the Soviets continued to fortify it in several stages. The wire fencing was improved in the early 60s. From 65 to 75, the concrete walls were improved. Then in 75, the final stage of construction began, built with 45,000 individual reinforced concrete panels and topped with round, smooth cement caps to prevent anyone climbing over the top. A second wall was added in 1962, inside East Berlin, and parallel to the first wall, to create what was named the Death Strip, an area in which all buildings were torn down to make it easier for guards to detect escapees. There were eventually several more deterrents put in place by the Soviets, platforms of exposed nails below balconies that overlooked the death zone, watchtowers with armed guards, anti-vehicle trenches, guard dogs on long lines, barbed wire, mines buried in the ground, and water mines in the river. Escape was not trivial, and anywhere from 100 to well over 200 people lost their lives attempting to do so. The exact number is still disputed, but about 5,000 did manage to cross over into West Berlin. The Soviet Union maintained the status quo in Berlin until 1989, when they seemed to slowly lose their grip on several of their member countries. Poland's communist government failed. Hungary removed its electric border fence with Austria, though the border itself was still heavily guarded. More and more East Germans left Germany by going first to the former Czechoslovakia, then on to Hungary or by going to the West German Embassy in Prague. On November 9, 1989, East German authorities decided that, in order to relieve the heavy flow of people into other Eastern Bloc countries, they would open crossing points in Berlin itself. The head of the Communist Party in Berlin was tasked with making the announcement 
though he hadn't been present at the meeting where the new policy was discussed. After making a statement to the press, he was asked when this new policy would take effect. Not having any information to the contrary, he announced that he guessed it would take effect immediately. News of his surprise declaration hit the nightly news between 7 and 8 p.m. in both East and West Germany, and East Berliners immediately began gathering at the six Berlin crossing points. Guards on duty had no idea how to respond, and there was much confusion and chaos that followed. By 10.45, crowds had grown to an unmanageable size, and finally the gates were open for all to pass through. Vessies, as those living in West Berlin were affectionately known, were there to greet the Aussies from the East with flowers, tears, and hugs. As I mentioned earlier, I was living in California at the time and dating a German who had only recently returned to Germany, so I followed the news with great interest. When in December, a month after the fall of the wall, I had the chance to go to Germany for the first time and seized upon it. With no return date, I bought a one-way ticket to Frankfurt and moved to Heidelberg, home to Germany's oldest university, founded in 1386. When I'd been there a mere two weeks, my boyfriend and his group of university friends decided we would go to the newly opened East Germany for New Year's Eve. We drove to Berlin and spent New Year's Eve at the Brandenburger Tor, along with about 200,000 ecstatic Berliners. But that is a story for another time. Today, when I visit the site, it is much different than it was when I was last here. Construction on the east side has brought new economic activity to the area. A street musician performs for tourists, who take selfies with the gate behind them, using smartphones that did not exist when last I stood here. It is strange for me to think that anyone here, under the age of 33, was not alive when the wall fell and has not lived the reality of an East and West Germany. So much has changed, and yet the Brandenburger Tor itself is as I remember it. Built in the late 1700s, the gate stood inside East Berlin all those years while the city was divided, and is now more a symbol of reunification than as the site of a former city gate. Full reunification of Germany came to pass within two years of the wall falling. The Soviet Union dissolved. The Berlin Wall, which for so long had stood as both a metaphorical and literal symbol of oppression, was chipped away at by locals and visitors to the city. I have a piece of my own that I got from a man wielding a sledgehammer that New Year's Eve in 1989, tucked away among my most treasured keepsakes. Three long sections of the wall remain standing in Berlin. One at the topography of terror site that I mentioned earlier. One partially reconstructed section in the north of the city. And one along the Spree River, as I mentioned before, across the street from my hotel. This long section is called the East Side Gallery and is a popular tourist attraction. 
whereas graffiti was not allowed on the east German side of the wall while it still stood, today this section is a gallery of sorts, as each of the 118 large cement panels has been painted with a mural by artists from around the world. The most popular, as far as I can tell from crowd sizes, is the panel reproduced in 2009 by the Russian artist Dmitry Rubel from one he painted in 1990. It features his painting entitled, My God, Help Me to Survive This Deadly Love. Originally a work of non-sanctioned graffiti, the painting depicts an actual photo, taken in 1979, of the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Leonard Brezhnev, and GDR President Eric Honecker, kissing at the celebration for the 30th anniversary of the German Democratic Republic. It has all the elements of a work of Berlin graffiti. Satire, sarcasm, cynicism, humor. To say it's just a painting of a photo would be too simple, especially in the context of its canvas, the Berlin Wall. Satirizing oppressors, using the thing they used to oppress people, has a certain poetry and symmetry to it. Berlin, its western half, once a lighthouse of democracy and a stormy sea of Soviet authoritarianism, is still a work in progress. I'm amazed to see how many construction projects are still in progress, even here along the waterfront of the river, more than thirty years after the fall of the Iron Curtain. But then I remember that I am still experiencing major transitions in my life, too. I certainly never planned to be doing something like Lights Out Library, and I remember to feel grateful that things change, even when we can't yet tell if it's for the better. That night, I wake up hot and test positive for COVID the next day, likely the result of my travel delays. I spend the rest of my trip either resting in bed or taking long, slow walks through the city and staying outdoors where I can't infect anyone. I find more parks, more cemeteries, and a charming Kleingarten, an urban community garden, something beloved in Germany, in which locals can rent or own small garden plots and build tiny cottages. There are more than one and a half million of these in Germany, and many used the gardens to feed themselves during the wars. The ones I find here in a neighborhood, incongruously named Dark Matter, are charming and lush, and I use all my restraint to not steal one of the gorgeous purple plums that are in season right now. I also happen upon the Berliner Dome, or Berlin Cathedral, in my wanderings, some beautiful museums, and the Reichstag Gebäude, the national government buildings, since Berlin is once again the capital of a reunified Germany. Walking along the riverfront, I encounter a tango class taking place right here on the walkway. Then, turning the corner, I pass a Zumba class, then a group learning to waltz, a swing dance class, and yet another group learning salsa. It's one more surprise gift I've been given by this city, even when I'm not feeling my best. A beautiful day of clear skies, 
and music wafting across the water, the hesitant students learning to dance right here in public for all to see. I feel like I'm getting to witness the city in its authentic form, without its makeup on, so to speak, which only happens when I wander without a plan. A plan wouldn't have helped in any case, since, as so often happens, life had other plans for me. I continue to rest and thankfully test negative for COVID the day before I'm scheduled to fly home. I pick up a final few souvenirs, mostly chocolates from the grocery store, pack my bags, and say goodbye to Berlin. I can never fully say goodbye to Germany, though. It is one of those places in my life where a part of me will always reside, a piece that is missing until I visit and can feel, even if only briefly, a little more whole. I have a few places like this in my life, places where I lived or visited and where I feel I belong. North Carolina, New York City, the mountains of California, and yes, Germany. These places are like old friends, and no matter how often I'm able to visit, no matter how much time we spend apart, or how much we each change, we can still pick up the relationship right where we left off. Before you fall asleep tonight, I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me. Knowing I would be telling you about my adventures made my trip to Berlin just a little more special, and I tried to look at the city with fresh eyes, to see it not just for me, but for you too. I hope I managed to give you even a small sense of the place, and that you feel inspired to explore your own world, whether near or far from home. But not tonight. Tonight is for sleep. As you dream, I hope your mind wanders into the uncharted alleys and waterways of your imagination, and you awaken inspired and refreshed. Sleep well. Dear friends.